Before we dive back into Rasa, we want to take a moment to thank each one of you who has listened to our show so far, reached out to us with feedback, and shared our show with others. We appreciate your love and support. Now, on with episode three. Jam, ta, tom, ta, dhim, takkita, ta dhim, gena, ta tam, ta dhim, gena, ta te. Welcome to an off-the-beat dance podcast with Amea and Kiran. I'm Amea King. I'm a Kuchpuri dancer, dance educator, and writer based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Kiran Najagopalan, and I'm a New Jersey-based dancer, choreographer, educator, and writer. And on today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation where we left off last week on Rasa. Jam, ta, tom, ta, dhim, takkita, ta dhim, gena, ta tam, ta dhim, gena, ta te. Picking up from the Rasa theory framework that we covered last episode, let's do a thought experiment applying that to a piece. Ooh, a thought experiment. What do you have in mind? So this is something that I do with my students when they're being introduced to the idea of the Rasas, which is we'll take a piece and see if we can apply the framework to this piece. So let's take the Dikshitarkriti Kanjadalayatakshi, Ragam Kamalamanohari Naritarlam. So this is a beautiful lilting composition, and it's a piece that I think both you and I have in common performing as well. So, what is it that you want to do with this piece in particular? So, there is typically a, a Thai Bhava that is the backbone, right? for forming the rasa. So what would you say is this Thai Bhava in this case? Oof. See, I've actually never thought about Thai Bhava with Bhakti compositions. Because, you know, like when we were young, we're usually just taught the piece and we just sort of go through it with the whole idea of having a devotional mood. So in terms of like the Navarasa that we know, you know, um, I don't think this piece really falls into that. So typically, the conclusion that students come to is Vismaya, which maps to Adbhutarasa. So they are in awe, wonder. in oh. wonder Ooh. of the deity, in this case, Devi. I think it comes to that, that piece that we touched on last episode, where... Rasa might be for the entire production, but in this case, we don't have an entire production per se. We have a standalone song because it's been adapted for dance. A lot of it has to do with what the song is also doing in terms of music and in addition to phrase. The Pallavi has a really lilting quality, so it kind of gives that grace. So in that sense, I can hear like fleeting moments of bhavam that could potentially lead to rasa. But I don't know if I can call that a stai bhava per se, right? It's like, it's so fleeting. And it's in a transition in a song, so maybe it's like a vivachari bhava instead. So then what happens if you walk away from the lyrics in the song and instead go to a specific person's dance interpretation of this piece? Hmm. See, this is where it becomes tricky because suppose somebody does it with like jing-bang footwork all over the place and like dancing up and down, jumping and showing Devi. I don't think I personally will have any rasa reaction to it. I'll be like, okay. But if somebody captures the essence of it, the song 
has like a punch to it. It's not like, it's not, you know, um, it's not completely a static, same column kind of song. There's like a dynamism to it. So if it's done well, I think I would come out of it feeling some sort of joy because the song is so catchy and so beautiful to listen to. But if the interpretation is particularly sublime of certain parts of it, then I may feel coming out of it maybe a sense of devotion, maybe a sense of adbuttam. So you've said joy, devotion, and adbuttam. And only one of those three are part of the Navarasa construct. I know. So, so what happened? <laughs> what happened, right? <laughs> and I think that's exactly the question that I have found myself asking. And for the longest time, I sat there thinking, am I doing it wrong? So basically, what I think has happened because of this thought experiment, it's kind of challenged me to think about, one... Is it possible to classify bhakti as a rasa? And two, there isn't really a foolproof formula to being able to describe what an aesthetic experience is or when, when the potential for rasa can occur. So this makes me wonder, Ameya, does the established framework about rasa and rasa theory make sense to our practices now? You know, I think that's a fair question. And I was very scared to answer this question for the longest time. I was convinced that if I couldn't make this rasa framework work for my dance pieces, that I was misunderstanding it, that I was doing something wrong. Did you feel that you had to then, as a result, not go with those instincts? about something not working and how to fix it, but try to try and stick to what is the prescribed framework? Well, I'm a bit of a nerd. Surprise, surprise. So I went digging and researching. And what I was just fascinated to find out is that even if we have this sort of very simple picture painted for Rasa, here's the technical definition Here's the formula. Here are all the variables you could plug into the formula. Here are the possible outcomes. Here you go. Have at it. Oh, and at some point, Shanta became a rasa, right? That's the picture we get painted. There has been this vibrant debate across the centuries. The framework that really made some dots connect for me was the framework that introduced bhakti as a rasa. It's time for an aside. Music and dance were an intrinsic part of the bhakti movement that swept across the Indian subcontinent from the 12th century onward. During this time, literature, poetry, dance, and music flourished, as did different schools of thought on the nature of the relationship between mankind and divinity. The dominant schools, whose influence we continue to see in the Indian classical dance traditions today, include the Dvaita, Advaita, and Vishishta Dvaita schools. The Bhakti movement revolutionized society by making philosophical concepts accessible to regular people. It did so by expressing the nature of divinity through the lens of human relationships, such as the bond between a man and a woman, or a servant and a master, and 
very importantly, by using the local language, music, and dance to proliferate these messages. To that end, you can trace the spread of the movement not only through literature and the arts, but through the transfer of power between various rulers who ascribed to one sect or another. The dance traditions of Manipur have retained both the early ancestor and nature-based ritual dances, like Laiharoba, as well as dance traditions of the medieval time, like the Manipuri Ras Lila. So the clear connections are visible between the practice of the earlier and latter forms, as well as the impact of the Bhakti cult. This phenomenon can be traced in various artistic traditions across the Indian subcontinent. Coming back to rasa, the discussion of bhakti as a rasa is a key example of all of these elements coming together. The 15th century saint Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was a key figure in the proliferation of the Krishna cult in what is today West Bengal, though his ideas spread far beyond the Bengal region. The books by his disciple Rupa Goswamin, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, and Ujwalini Lamani, among others, were not only seminal texts as part of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but also in the evolution of rasa. Bhakti rasa is divided into two categories. The mukhya or primary rasas are Shanta, peace, Riti, attachment, Reyas, agreeableness, Vatsala, affection, especially towards children, and Madhura, sweet love. The Gauna or secondary rasas are the remaining seven of the Natishastra's rasas, not counting Shringara. A key thing to note is that in this context, the focus is no longer on rasa theory um, as a performance-based theory, but instead on the relationship between the devotee and God. In this framework, it is argued that all devotees have Madhura Bhakti as the Thai Bhava in their hearts, and in combination with the Vibhavas, they result in experiencing Bhakti Rasa. As much as we focus on the Navarasa construct, this framework of the Bhakti Rasa seems to much better apply to the aspects of classical dance repertoire that is based on devotional pieces. So then eventually we have this scenario, which is what is reflective today, of three or four major practices of Hinduism being Vaishnavism, Shaivism, Shaktiism, and then of course, whatever indigenous practices and local practices there are too. And what was very clarifying for me was learning that history. And within the context of that history, understanding when these composers lived and where they did, and also seeing the framework of rasa being directly tied with religion and with spirituality. Coming back to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Rupa Goswami, Rupa Goswami wrote Ujwal Nilamani and Bhakti Rasamrata Sindhu, which really are the definitive books on bhakti as a rasa. And what what's interesting is the rasas defined by Bharata were listed as the secondary rasas. 
Hmm. So they're under bhakti, and then you have the eight other rasas. Except for Shringara. Shringara was not there. Because the primary rasas were Shanta, Preeti, Preyas, Vatsala, and Madhura. So then Rati is essentially a rasa, not a sthai bhava. And these are the facets of Rati. So where do the other rasas from Natya Shastra then fall if there's five primary rasas under Bhakti rasa? They're secondary. I think if you go back to our attempt at codifying and classifying Kanjadalayatakshi, at the end of the day, it's a devotional piece. We're seeing flashes and moments where other rasas can come through. But at the end of the day, it is a devotee who is praising the deity, right? So bhakti is not necessarily just a rasa. And I say this in quotes. It's more the lens through which you understand rasa. So bhakti is everything. And all of these rasas are just ways of understanding it almost. It completely shifts the focus in a sense where we're going from the goal being rasa being produced to the goal being a devotional experience. So then we had this whole idea that siddhi or fulfillment then becomes the objective of art and aesthetic experience of art, right? Yes. Now, let me ask you this. How often do you walk away from a performance feeling bhakti or siddhi, something like that, a definitive outcome? As in, I feel the need to to look in and then look up. It doesn't happen very often. Usually when I see a really good dance performance that's moved me, I feel a sense of joy afterwards because I'm like, this is this makes me so happy to see something so powerful. Because I mean, I, I walk away with it going through the emotions, don't get me wrong. But when I come away from it, I feel happy, eager to tell somebody about it, joyful for being able to see something like that, especially since, to be honest, I'm oversaturated at this point with images, with dance clips, Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So if I see a performance that really moves me, I'm even more compelled to feel joy. Yet, joy is not a rasa. Exactly, which pisses me off. <laughs> so that's interesting when it comes to the Natya Shastra and joy. Jay Senapati, who wrote the Nrutaratnavali much, much, much later, he very confidently states that, you know, he's sure if Bharata read the Nrutaratnavali, he would say Jay Senapati knew his heart. That is how confident he is in his interpretation and oh understanding. Oh my God. Chala, of the Shastra. Chala. Too much. <laughs> but he, and the reason I bring that up is because in the Nrutaratnavali, in the opening passages, Nrutta is brought up with joy. And it's talking about the joy of Shiva and the joy of Krishna and Radha dancing. When it comes to dance, for example, there are certain people who just emit and radiate joy in their dance and it makes you smile. That is definitely a rasanubhava situation. And it's a primordial expression. It's something that's so visceral and inherent. Like, I don't understand why anandam is not in the, in the list of rasas. Here's what else. 
there has been research done at a couple of different universities. I'll, I'll dig up the studies. This research basically had some music playing and they said, okay, dance like you're happy. Dance like you're sad. And they had an indigenous tribe in the Southeast Asian country compared to college kids in the, in, in a, on a campus in North America, right? There's no confluence between those two groups culturally, but emotionally, joy is universal. And they danced the same way for joy. It was faster. It was more open movements. And that's universal, not just in classical dances like ours that are very structured, but also community dances and folk dances and anything we find around the world. I mean, joy seems like such a core outcome of dance. So let's do this, Kiran. Let's take a very systematic look at the Tolkapyam and its list and some of the notable differences it has from the Navarasa list. I'd like to kind of tease apart bravery or valor versus pride, because I think bravery and valor seem very much in the battle context. And they also have a very strongly positive connotation. It's interesting because, you know, in Sangam era, there was a lot of talk about war. So war and battle and um, and warriors were very much in the fabric of Thummer culture at the time. So it's not necessarily a separate thing, probably, in that, in that society. So there's a sense of pride that comes automatically without having to say this is bravery, if that makes any sense. It's like part of the fabric, I'm guessing. But you can get pride outside of the military sphere. I don't know if you can get valor outside of the military sphere. That's what I find really compelling is because valor and bravery is very much of one context, whereas pride is sourced from many different things, right? And so to me, that feels more like a rasa than viram does. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes up to me is pride is not necessarily positive or negative, whereas valor is most necessarily positive. But do you notice when it comes to the way in which Hindu thought, Buddhist thought and Jain thought had manifested as extensions of power, especially during you know the 5th century BCE to the start of the Bhakti movement, arguably around the 6th century CE. In that period, there was a lot of tension that was happening between the various schools of thought, whether they're Buddhism, Jainism, and in fact, even in Southern India, Tamar Nadu from the 1st century CE to the 6th century CE was ruled by people we don't exactly know of what faith, but we know of the text at the time that it was largely dominated by Buddhist and Jain thought. So then when we have things like, you know, Viram being a rasa, it makes you wonder about how much of that is about asserting power and asserting cultural authority over a people. And that's a positive thing. I think I see a similar dynamic if we're comparing karuna, compassion, versus grief. <laughs> because... You grieve when it's you, when you feel that pain on yourself, whereas you feel empathy if you're a little bit removed. It's almost like you're in a place of privilege to be able to feel empathy. So it's kind of like then you have this power hierarchy, right, where you're valorizing valor, pardon the pun. You're also vilifying sometimes pride as being too prideful. So it's almost like, you know, when you have a rebel group, a minority group that exhibits a lot of pride, there's this need to squash that rebellion, right? And you do so by valorizing valor. 
And this is the case in many scenarios where, you know, the dominant force subjugates the less dominant force, right? And then you have this whole idea of valor, of subjugating, but then pride for being able to resist. It's strange, right? It's, it's a very interesting. And then, of course, with karuna and grief, that same hierarchy is there. You are removed from the situation because of your prestige, your privilege, and your power, but you're grieving something that is in your world. And if you're outside of that world or privileged to be outside of it or choose to remove yourself from that world, you have that vantage point to be empathic versus the one who's struggling in that grief. I think I saw this dynamic a lot in the kind of conversations and performances that were coming within the Indian classical dance world in response to the protests of last summer with Black Lives Matter. I agree with you on that. In some cases, it it really felt a lot more like karuna, ayopapam, rather than grief. There is an othering, even as there is a quote-unquote bringing visibility. And see, how do we reconcile that with dance? Because by nature, like by the name itself, classical dance, it's beholding the style of dance to a certain privilege. So then when you have a dance style like ours whether it's Kuchipuri or Bharatanatyam, and we want to depict this kind of theme, it's very difficult to navigate that fine line between empathy, but a sense of detachment at the same time. I think you and I are in a really special circumstance by virtue of you know, our personal lives. Both of us have a partner who identifies as Black or African-American, right? There is something at stake in our personal life that this makes it all the more of a grief situation versus a karuna situation sometimes. That could be my husband. That could be my son. Yeah, that could be my partner. And I always wonder about this because when, when we start thinking about the way in which codified lists, archetypes, formulas come about, we kind of have to also think about these sorts of contexts and these sorts of questions about what is the intention behind what we do. Who's making the list? And who's making the list? Who got to put it on paper? And why was it saved? Let's talk about Shantarasa versus the idea of joy. This is something where I really struggle, as, as we kind of touched earlier, with the fact that joy is not one of the rasas. But I think it's interesting that when we experience joy so much as an out outcome of the arts, that's not on the list. But the Shantarasa is. Which I think also goes into this whole idea of sacred and sacrosanct when it comes to classical dance. Because I know in Bharatanatyam, for example, there is a lineage where there is a courtesan aspect to things that cannot be ignored, of patronage, where repertoire is not necessarily liturgical, but secular. Or, you know, and there are pieces that we perform which are meant to be secular, but sometimes they're aestheticized to be devotional. So we have this circumstance where art for art's sake, art for the sake of having art and bringing joy or bringing satisfaction or, or whatever sense of pleasure fulfillment is kind of then not given it's due. It's basically subsumed under this idea that dance has to serve a liturgical purpose because it's like, what are we promoting? We're not necessarily promoting spirituality all the time. We're promoting God and country. 
Exactly. Nationalism. And of course, Hinduism. When you think about even the way in which signifiers of culture, especially of classical dance, you have this idea of cultural marketing, right? And so you have Nataraja that was introduced as the universal symbol of classical dance now, of Indian classical dance to be more specific. And that was largely during the, um, in the 20s and the 30s. On the one hand, Rukmini Devi Arundel introducing it arguably for the first time on a proscenium stage. And then, of course, the subsequent cultural marketing, which also led to the rise of certain classical dance forms coming into vogue and appropriating from the styles that preceded it. Once you've transmitted culture and people are aware of culture, Shantam is perhaps a means to make sure that they remain in control under said religious message. This idea of peace is noble, but there's also other sides to it that should be discussed. I think an important call out here is peace as a utopian characteristic versus peace as an outcome. If we're talking about peace as in world peace, as that kind of utopian characteristic, that is something we have to actively build towards. That means dismantling existing power structures. On the other hand, peace as an outcome seems more like maintaining the status quo. Whereas joy as an outcome prioritizes what makes you, the individual, happy. So it sounds like peace is something collectivistic, whereas joy is individualistic. Potentially. Joy can also be collectivist. But if you're chasing what brings you joy as an artist without necessarily thinking about what about the greater good, you might be more likely to do different works that put out different ideas, that use the language of Indian classical dance differently than has been done in the accepted mainstream. So this brings me to another point that I know that you and I have discussed at length privately, and I hope you don't mind if we bring it to the public forum. It's basically about this idea of when things that you do end up being either interpreted as going rogue or you deliberately do it to go rogue. And what are the consequences of that? We as young dancers experience, especially if we want to do something that is outside of the prescribed formula. I think that's a very interesting point. And what I'm kind of trying to piece together is what are all of the different factors that come into a dance form? There's how did somebody learn? What Bani, what school, blah, 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 is the formal way of talking about it. But how did somebody learn? What is the environment in which they learned, which is a distinctly different thing? Because learning the same way, but in a different cultural context, produces different results. And then what is the call of the moment? What is the question? What is the burning fire of the moment? And for many students, it's not necessarily the same questions we asked. And so does the form have to change because of that? Or does our approach to understanding how the form is used as a tool have to be re-examined. And I'll look at, I'll point to history for that. Let's think about the iconic people of our respective dance traditions. Why are they iconic? Because they made a change. We would not be remembering their names. We would not be paying homages to them and deifying them if they had not brought 
an inflection point in the development of the form. And we're reaching the same kind of juncture at this point, too, because when some of the foremost iconic figures of our dance styles were doing work, India itself was in a very volatile transitional period as well. And I think we've reached the same juncture point too. And I think I've been seeing changes in, you know, the aesthetics of Bharatanatyam and in Kuchipudi and in Odissi. There's been a lot of changes in terms of its adaptation to social media culture. This is where I think, you know, the idea of you know, formulas, archetypes, and frameworks are going to continue to be challenged. And I think Rasa theory does have its place. Codifying it as almost law for classical dance doesn't make sense anymore. So let's talk through some examples with that. Let's look at the construct of the Navarasas. It is so common now to see the Navarasas presented collectively, where you just go through them in order, one by one, one after the other. And it might be to the same line of the song repeating again and again. It might be to instrumental music and you bring in some very cool sound effects and light effects and formations. And what you're essentially doing is you're evoking the concept of the Navarasas through Nrutta. And if you go back to the text, that's the one super clear message. Nrutta is devoid of rasa. Yet, again and again and again, we see examples of the Navarasa construct represented, knowingly or unknowingly, via Nrutta. Now, I'm not going to talk about if it's good or bad. The purpose of it is to point out, right there is an example of what is documented being transformed. And whether that's intentional or unintentional, it is a change and it is accepted today. And I think we have similar conventions where we have certain ragas and certain thalas associated with certain rasas, with certain moods being tied to certain tempos. And for every rule, you can find another exception. Like, for example, kamas is a commonly encountered raga in Shingara compositions. And it's a beautiful lilting ragam. But I actually heard it once in a production a long time ago where it was to showcase somebody's desire to show anger, but in a very deviously sweet way. It was the fact that the composer used kamas in a way which served the story. When it comes to ragam and all that, the, the choices are limitless, in, especially in South Indian and North Indian music. We can rely upon archetypes and formulas from the past as a guide, but they shouldn't necessarily be the law to follow now, especially when we have access to so much knowledge. Rhythm plays a huge part in it. And I know that's your um, main area of focus as a choreographer and as a researcher has been on the intricate use of rhythm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? The whole question that we started this episode with, what is the rasa, is really the question that led me to pay attention to rhythm. Because I started noticing correlation between rhythmic structures in a choreography and the associated feeling. I do not think that choreographers have a formula where they say, if I want to show anger, I will show Khanda Chapuera, you know, in the fast pace or whatever the case may be. <laughs> and use Akana Ragam, you know. There you go. But instead, what we're doing as creators is what feels aesthetic. And part of what informs us is obviously what has come before. But either way, we take what's aesthetic. And if you look at a large body of 
different works. What I ended up researching was solo repertoire Kuchipudi and taking as many different pieces of solo items in Kuchipudi. And there are certain trends and patterns that emerge. It's not a one-to-one correlation saying fast means angry, slow means sad, per se. Instead, it's really, you see what are the thought processes that come into play? What are the systems that come into play when people figure out what the right thing to do is? Like existing references or how they learned their pedagogy. What is What feels proportional to the song at hand? What feels proportional to that segment at hand? Alignment between the rhythm and the words, between the rhythm and the story. And all of these little factors that, that all add up, and these are micro decisions that creators make that they don't even realize that they're doing. You remember from English class, having to take a poem and rip it apart and find the metaphors and similes and the rhyming structure. And you can see commonalities in the thought process in the diverse outputs. And again, it's not a question of what's good, what's bad. That's always up to up for debate and there's never a right answer. It's a question of what's possible. And I think that's an important discussion, both when it comes to choreography and performance specifically, and this whole framework of what is right and what is classical at the larger level. Because when we learn a very rigid, two-dimensional picture of the aspects of dance, like rasa and bhava and these different archetypes, what we might end up doing is a lot of self-censorship. Because we feel that the language of our form doesn't have the words for the conversations we want to have. And I think that's a huge part of it. And also in terms of what happens when you start to push the form beyond what people are used to. A lot of my school of thought basically is predicated on the fact that if you know the rules, you can learn how to break the rules. So call me old school because, you know, um, especially now in this Instagram era where there is a democratization of the art, forgive my butchered English pronunciation. There's a democratization of the art form where now you get a chance to see people who you don't normally see because of curatorial issues, so to speak. Social media has changed that for the better, but also at the same time, it's led to a proliferation of amateur talent as well, for good and for bad. So I'm not saying that social media is a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a great thing or a good thing. It simply is in our world. What does this have to do with Rasa? So as I said, when it comes to pushing the art form and, under, and pushing our understanding of Rasa, the fact that we are sitting here talking about its history and trying to make informed decisions about whether or not it remains relevant or it works with the way things work now is because there is an effort to understand what it is, what has been said about it, what are others saying about it, and that's kind of led us to our conclusions. So I'm honestly hoping that the same thing also happens for dance in terms of practice and pushing the form forward to talk about narratives that are not normally part of the dance. How do we make intellectual decisions about and aesthetic decisions and artistic decisions that push the form forward in a healthy way, but also continue the legacy it is part of? You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? I think so. And I think it all comes back to do with intention. If we're trying to do something, if we're trying to say something, and it could be as simple as I want to create something happy, 
that's a worthy goal. As long as you set that intention, and that's what you try to do. Over the course of last week's episode and this week's episode, we talked about the basic framework of the Rasa theory as we know it today with the formula and the Navarasas. We also talked about some of the inherent areas of debate and some of the questions that have come up and also how we can use it moving forward. With all of this, what would you say you've learned today? That's a really good question because we talked about what were seemingly disparate subjects under the umbrella of Rasa theory. But at the end of the day, the most important lesson that I had learned is basically that you cannot really understand or analyze or interpret what Rasa is and what Rasa theory is trying to describe in isolation, meaning that you cannot understand it fully only through literature. You cannot understand it fully through dance or just theater or just music, etc. So it's a holistic experience. So I think at the end of the day, the way that I think about Rasa, and, and especially after what we have discussed today, is that there is grand, there's great possibilities for Rasa, but it's not necessarily in the prescribed formula that has been passed down to us today. Sometimes things don't fall into those paradigms so neatly. So then we have to re-examine what is it that is useful to us now. Does the list that we have inherited and the, the list that we adhere to now, does it actually help serve what we want to talk about as dancers in this day and age? What I learned today probably falls into about two, two buckets, one happier than the other. The first is the idea of power and how this seemingly simple, objective list of the aesthetic experience Having been confronted with an alternative text from around the same time period of a different language and seeing the differences between the two lists, it got me thinking about power structures and who writes the rules, who gets a say, and why is it that one text is seen as more authoritative than the other. And I think that there is no neutral, safe, area. I think we can find these sorts of power dynamics in play in every aspect of life, including, not just including, but especially in the arts. We just have to be watchful for it. The happier one is joy and the importance of joy. It seems like a no-brainer now, after having teased it apart, that dance brings joy. That's why we are dancers. And I think that's a worthy goal. Just to add one more thing that I had learned, it's this idea about Shantam and Siddhi as tools of subjugation. As an utopian principle, Shantam is noble. Shantam is what we should, is an ideal state. And it's something that we would love to be able to achieve. <laughs> So our call to action for all of you this week is to take a dance piece, something that may be quite culturally contextual, but something that is also dear to you 
and present it to another person who is not necessarily a dancer and see what their visceral reaction is. Don't contextualize the piece. Don't describe it. Don't explain it. Just simply perform it and see what the reaction is. Let us know what happens. We want to hear all about it. Today's episode would not have been possible without the support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering. Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo. Catwalk Institute for Kiran Studio Space. Sarada Jemmi for Amea Studio Space. Daya Arts for their support. Drs. V. Arusu, Lakshmi Ramaswamy, S. Raghuraman, and V. Murugan for their critical insights into Tolkapiyam and the contributions of Tamil literature to Indian dance and aesthetics. Drs. Yashoda Thakur and Anupama Kailash for their incisive dives into the nuances of Rasa theory and its evolution through Sanskritic literature, as well as their guidance for Amaya's research into the relationship between rhythm and emotion at the University of Silicon Amra. A special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr., as always. Like what you've heard? Remember to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast so that more folks can find out about what we're doing as we continue to bring you new episodes of Off the Beat Dance. We'd love to hear from you. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your friends about us. You can follow us at Off the Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or visit us on our website at www.offthebeat.dance. See you next Thursday for episode four on the sacred and the secular.